My name is Mike Tucker. I'm an elder in process here at Grace Life. I want to welcome you this morning and in, in, uh, encourage you to, uh, to say that your sins are forgiven. We're going to be uh, back in Ephesians uh, as we begin this morning uh, in the series In Him. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Before we get there, though, I want like to tell you a couple of stories. Um, Frank and Ann attended a marriage, a weekend marriage conference. And they sat and listened to the instructor say it's essential that husbands and wives know the things that are important to each other. And then the instructor addressed the men and he said, can you name and describe your wife's favorite flower? Frank leaned over close to his wife, gently touched her arm and whispered to her, gold medal all purpose, right? And thus began Frank's life of celibacy. <laughs> Frank and Ann probably need a little help in their marriage, particularly Frank. And another story, uh, not so amusing, is uh, I know a husband and wife. And they certainly both claim to love each other, but I know that the husband didn't lead his family, did not see his wife as valuable enough to cherish her, or even saw that she could be valuable to others. I know that the wife acted in subservience, not from any sense of, uh, of biblical understanding, but just because that's what she thought she should do, and it wasn't done in any way to serve her husband or her family or to act in concert with him. And this marriage produced three children, and this marriage ended after 27 years in divorce. And I know this story is true because those were my parents. They did not exemplify a marriage uh, that was biblical. And I hope this morning that we can uh, give us some clues about what God wants in marriages. And if you're not married here today, this can still be valuable to you. So I hope you'll, um, I hope you'll listen. So let's, uh, let's start with the end of the passage we're going to look at, Ephesians 5.33. Paul says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Now, if that's the only thing Paul said about husbands and wives, that would be enough. After all, this is God's word. It would be enough for husbands and wives who are believers in Christ to follow that instruction. But Paul, there is much more, and Paul says much more about it. Uh, we can't go home yet. We have some work to do, but it's worth it. Let's read the whole passage, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, 
and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you this morning just asking that you would open our hearts, that you'd open our minds to your word for the purpose of it changing us so that we would become more like your son, Jesus Christ, which is what you promised in Romans 8. So open our hearts, open our minds to this. Help us to hear what you have to say. And may the words that are spoken this morning be your words, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there's some context and background to this passage that I think it's important to know. Five things. First, Paul's writing to believers. That may seem obvious to you, but I want you to catch this idea that, yeah, Paul was writing to believers, believers who had believing spouses, but he was also writing to believers who had unbelieving spouses. And while there may be differences in application, the instructions apply in both situations. The second thing we need to know is that one of the values of Greek-Roman society that was highly prized was order and control. And this applied to all aspects of Roman society. Uh, Everything, marriages and everything else. Uh, And it was important for Roman society that this was developed, and it was developed through these things called household codes. These codes were a series of instructions addressed to husbands and fathers, wives, children, servants, and slaves to instruct them on how they would should behave in the household. And these codes went as far back as Aristotle. And there were many, many codes written. And by, by and large, there weren't too many differences between them, some minor differences. But there are two things that they had in common. First thing is that the instruction to the husband or father was that you're in control. You have all rule and authority. There is no... Uh, exception to that, the members of your family have no uh, no rights in that regard. You're the authority. You're the rule in your family. And the rule was, was um, so extensive for husbands and fathers that if a husband or a father uh, directed somebody in his family or in his household to do something and, it, and what they did displeased him, He had the right not only to punish them, but he had the right under certain circumstances to have them executed if if he felt that was warranted. The second thing that was common in these codes was the instructions to everybody else in the family was that you obey. You obey the head of the household, the father, the husband. No questions asked. And if Paul's... uh, Writing in Ephesians two chapter five twenty two through all the way through chapter six verse nine is his version of a household code, and it's radical. It was radical for his time, and it's radical for our time. The third thing we need to know is about conflict. This goes all the way back to Genesis. In fact, it'd be worth looking at Genesis three sixteen in this regard. You'll remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them and pronounced a series of judgments. Sometimes we call them curses. Uh, God pronounced a curse on the serpent, that he would have to uh, crawl on the ground and eat dirt. God pronounced a curse on the ground, on the land, that it would produce thorns and thistles. God uh, pronounced a judgment on Adam, saying that you're going to have to grow your crops now by the sweat of your brow. And he pronounced judgment on the woman. In verse, chapter 3, verse 16 of Genesis, this is in the NLT. He said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give childbirth. And then there's another judgment. It's directed toward the woman, but it's really a judgment on both men and women, husbands and wives. 
And it says, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. The word for control there is the same word that's used when God speaks to Cain. When he says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and it seeks to dominate you. It's the same word that's used here in Genesis 3.16. The curse, the judgment here, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin that applies to the entire world, including us, is that women, particularly in marriages, will have a desire to control their husbands, but it won't work out that way. Husbands will will have the rule over their wives. And however else you might want to interpret this passage, what it means is that there's conflict, natural conflict between men and women, especially between husbands and wives. And if you've uh, seen a marriage or you're in a marriage, you could probably nod your head, yeah, there is conflict. Uh, That's a result of the fall. I think we'll see here in a little bit that uh, Paul seeks to reverse that, that curse. The fourth thing we need to know is that Christ is the reason and example for all of this instruction about marriage. Um, When you look at the passage, if you were to count the words, which I did, uh, there are 221 words in this passage, depending on your your translation. 38% of those words are not about husbands or wives, they're about Christ. So his position here in these instructions is very important. And one other note that I'll let you make of what you will is that of the words used to husbands and wives in this passage, 85% of them are directed toward husbands. Scott. <laughs> I, uh, I shouldn't have done that because it's going to come back and bite me. <laughs> and the fifth thing is that the primary principle of governing this passage isn't in the passage. It's in the verse preceding it. Take a look at Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for this is for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then Paul says, These are the marks of what being filled in the Spirit is like. It's addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It's giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And being filled with the Holy Spirit is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the defining principle of the passage we're looking at. And the reason we know this is that if you look at verse 22, where it says, wives, uh, submit to your husbands, the words, or excuse me, the verb submit doesn't appear in the Greek there. And in Greek construction, when you have this situation, you need to go find the verb in the preceding, the, the, the next preceding, or the earliest preceding verb that comes before that. In this case, it's submit, or submit uh, to one another. And so in the NLT, which I think does a good job of translating this section to, to bring this idea out in verse 22, in fact, we, should, we could read it, um, uh, submit, uh, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, and then verse 22, for wives, this means that you submit to your husband as to the Lord. And then even in verse 25, it says, For husbands, this means love your wives, as Christ loved the church. The point here is that the principle of submitting to one another is what governs the submission and the relationship between husband and wife. So keep that in mind as we go on. So what about submission? What is that all about? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that it's not a dirty word. It's a dirty word in our culture. 
Much of Western culture um, abhors the word submit and submission. Uh, the culture regards that word as meaning that if you're a submit, you're uh, inferior. The culture believes that submission is also equated with the idea of subjugating women. And if we're going to be honest, if we take a look at history and take a look at what's going on today, and you go back in history as far as you wanted to, much of history when it comes to men and women is a matter of men trying to subjugate women. That's our history. That's because of the fall. That's who we are if we, uh, if we live in our natural state. So it's not surprising that the culture around us regards this word as a dirty word, but the, the, the scripture doesn't. And there are several reasons for that. Let me read Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 to set this up. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, Christ, so wives should also submit to their husbands in everything. Okay, the first reason this is not a dirty word is that submission is a biblical principle. I already mentioned Ephesians 5.21, which is uh, submit one to one another. But 1 Corinthians 11.3, Colossians 3.18, Titus 2.5, 1 Peter 3.1-2 all teach, for example, that wives should submit to their husbands. And beyond that, passages like 1 Corinthians 16.15 and 16, you don't have to turn there, uh, Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject, or submit, to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. 1 Peter 2, 13 says, Be subject to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, who, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. And that verse ends with, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a thread that runs through the entire New Testament, this idea of submitting. The second reason submission is not a dirty word is because Christ submitted to the Father. In John eight twenty eight through 29, Jesus says, uh, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Look what he says there. I do nothing on my own authority. I speak just as the Father taught me, and I do the things that are pleasing to him. In John seventeen four, Jesus, in his prayer to God before his arrest, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus submitted to the Father. If he can submit to the Father, certainly women can submit to their husbands. The next reason is that submission is not a dirty word is because this is God's created order. In verse 23 in our passage, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Submission in marriage does not mean subservience, subjection, or inferiority. Rather, it recognizes God's created order. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So submission is what God wants. It's created by God. Male headship is not become because men are smarter or more qualified or better looking. Even some, some might suggest that men are better looking, but I don't believe it. 
That's not why male headship is there. It's because God has made it that way. And this order was created in part, I would suggest, to solve or to at least mitigate the conflict between husbands and wives that came because of the fall. This order reflects God's priorities and desire. In his commentary on Ephesians, Henry Bullinger said this, A badly ordered marriage is one in which there are quarrels and fights about who is in control, in which neither spouse plays a part, plays their part, in which there is no fear of God, and where there is no established pattern of doing things. In this way, both parties end up miserable in both mind and body, and they lose their children. I want to stop there for a second, saying I know this because uh, my parents lost all three of their kids. Not to death, I don't mean it that way, but they lost the relationship that they had with their kids. The result, Henry goes on, is a poverty that leads to crime, fraud, falsehood, and all evil. Therefore, it was in order to keep such evils away from the Christian home that Paul spent so much time instituting a pattern for marriage. Henry Bolger was a Swiss Reformed pastor and theologian. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther. The next reason that submission is not a dirty word is that Christ with the church is the example. In verse 24, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, every, uh, submit in everything to their husbands. As the created order is fulfilled by the church, or excuse me, as the created order is fulfilled by the church as it submits to Christ, wives fulfill God's created order by submitting to their husbands. It's good for the church to submit. It is as good for the, for the wife to submit to her husband. And then the last reason that submission is not a dirty word is found in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For wives, two wives, says Paul in a personal way, that as you submit to Christ, submit to your husbands. And he instructs the, the, the Colossians in a similar way. In Colossians 3.18, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So what is submission? How would we define it? Let me give, a, let me give it a shot. Submission in marriage is the willing giving of preference and respect by the wife to the husband as he loves and leads, recognizing God's created order and ordained pattern in the context of believers submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. By the way, Paul gave one instruction to wives, just one. He fleshed it out with his uh, understanding of how Christ fit into that, but the, submit, the, the instructions is to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And in a similar way, Paul gives one instruction to the husbands, and it's about love. Ephesians 5, 25 through 31. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church or present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what does all this mean? Well, I think one of the things this means is that um, this is a one-way love, and I'm not suggesting that there's no love uh, that flows from a wife to a husband. What I'm suggesting here is, and probably what you've noticed by now, is that Paul doesn't instruct wives to love their husbands in this passage. 
instructs husbands to love their, their wives, but not wives their husbands. <clears throat> in Greek, in those household codes, codes that we talked about, wives were only told to obey their husbands. Love was never a part of it. And it's interesting to note that Paul never tells wives to obey their husbands. Likewise, in those codes, <clears throat> did not tell husbands to love their wives. They only told their husbands to rule their wives. In our passage, the word for love here is agapao, agapao, which is, of course, related to the Greek word agape, which is self-sacrificial love. And while Paul doesn't instruct wives to love their husbands here, he does instruct wives to love their husbands elsewhere. In Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, Paul is instructing Timothy on how to instruct the people in his congregation. And Paul says, Older women likewise should be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. The word for love here is not agape. It's philandros, which is a word that's related to the, the Greek word uh, Philadelphia for love. And Philadelphia, you may remember, is a brotherly love or a family-type love. Philandros here in this passage is specifically the love that a wife has for her husband. And it's, it's a response kind of love. In other words, a woman directs her love toward her husband because she's responding to how he loves her. And it's not, uh, if you love me, I will love you. It's more like, as you love me, I will love you. But in our passage, remember, the responsibility for love is placed on the husband. Some have tried to twist the meaning of this passage to say that husbands can lord it over their wives or treat them as less than full persons loved by God or even to abuse their wives. All those contradict all of the passage we've looked at. The love a husband has for his wife engenders a response of love and an attitude of submission by his wife. In a marriage where the husband is abusive or treats the wife very badly, the call for the wife to submit uh, should be limited. How can you respond in love and submission to a husband who is not loving you as he should, particularly if he's abusing so what does this love look like? <clears throat> it's love in action. The first is, out of Christ, is from Christ's example. In Ephesians uh, 5 again, verses 25 through 27, Paul says, Husband, love your, wife, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What Christ did for the church, the husband can do for his wife, that is to give himself up for her. A couple of uh, illustrations from my own life about this. Um, My wife, Nancy, uh, taught for 37 years in Christian elementary schools, and she was really good at it. And uh, during many of those years, the schools she taught at were associated with a uh, an association called ACSI, the Association of Christian Schools International. And, and associations like that, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, have conventions, uh, annual conventions to, uh, to uh, help teach teachers, to build them up, to give them skills and that kind of thing. <clears throat> and uh, the convention that, uh, that my wife would attend every year was in Anaheim. It was real close to us, so it was very convenient. <clears throat> and as most conventions are, you have uh, keynote speakers and general sessions and, and that kind of thing. And then you also have workshops where 
the participants can go to various workshops and uh, depending on what's being shared and taught and they can uh, learn some maybe specific kinds of skills. As I said, my wife taught for 37 years and one year this, this association came to her and said, we'd like you to teach a workshop. And uh, without thinking, I think she said, yeah, I'll do that. But she quickly realized that what she was being asked to do is something she had never done before. She was really good at teaching kids, really good. But she'd never had any experience at teaching adults. <clears throat> uh, and so uh, she uh, told me afterwards, she said, I, I'm terrified. And I said, okay, let's work on this together. And so Nancy and I spent a lot of hours together working on developing her workshop and developing what she was going to say and, and the techniques and things that how she was going to present it. And uh, through a lot of time and a lot of effort, we were able to uh, accomplish that. And she, uh, she did a great job. Um, I think we were expecting 10 or 15 people at her workshop. About 40 came. It was, about, it was standing room only in the room. <clears throat> the point there with that is that, um, if you'll allow me to say this without sounding too proud about it, uh, I helped her, and I encouraged her, and I gave up my time and my efforts for her. And that's an example, small one of what it means for a husband to love his wife and to give himself up. Another example, which is not so flattering, is uh, Nancy and I were invited to a wedding of a good friend of ours while we were in California and uh, attended the wedding. It was wonderful. We attended the reception. It was wonderful. And it was on a Saturday, and the next day, uh, as was my habit, I would be teaching an adult Sunday school class of about uh, 25 or 30 people normally. <clears throat> um, and I always like to make a joke in class because uh, uh, to loosen people up and, and to get that kind of thing. And so I decided to make a joke uh, in class that Sunday having to do with the reception and more specifically having to do with Nancy. And I'm not going to repeat what I said because it's, it should not be repeated. <clears throat> but what I said was something that was unflattering to my wife in an effort to make a joke. Uh, I thought it was funny at the time. Um, but uh, when we got home, my wife, uh, basically she hit me over the head with the Bible. Uh, and uh, I realized that what I had done is I had, rather than trying to make a joke, I insulted her. I did not cherish her in that moment. I did not love her in that moment. So that's a bad example of what husbands should do. In this case, should not do. As to what husbands should do, uh, a quote from a church father named Chrysotum, I think that's how you pronounce it, who wrote um, in the 4th century, about the middle of the 4th century. And he says this in, in, in commenting on Ephesians, and he's addressing men right now. He says, have you noticed the measure of obedience? Pay attention to love's high standard. If you take the premise that your wife should submit to you as the church submits to Christ, then you should also take the same kind of careful, sacrificial thought for her that Christ takes for the church. Even if you must offer your own life for her, you must not refuse. Even if you must undergo countless struggles on her behalf and have all kinds of things to endure and suffer, you must not refuse. And even if you suffer all this, you still have not done as much as Christ has for the church. 
For you are already married when you act this way, whereas Christ, in acting for one who has rejected and hated him. So just as he, when she was rejecting, hating, spurning, nagging him, brought her to trust him by his great solicitude, not by threatening, lording it over her or intimidating her or anything like that, so must you also act towards your wife. Even if you see her looking down on you, nagging and despising you, you will be able to win her over with your great love and affection for her. Husband's love needs to be self-sacrificial. As Christ died for the church, so the husband must have the same attitude toward his wife. And Paul's not equating husbands with Jesus Christ here. The husband can't do anything to make his wife holy and blameless. That's God's role. But Paul is concerned with the example. Husbands are to love, protect, lift up, care for, encourage, and do all the things to give his wife what is best for her. And I will say at this point, this has nothing to do with money. The husband is to give himself up. The husband is to do everything for his wife that he can do to make her better, to make her strong, able to live to the utmost of her God-given gifts and abilities. The husband is to focus not on his development primarily, but on hers, physically, emotionally, mentally, and most importantly, spiritually. The pattern is that the husband lead his wife and family with a self-sacrificial love, which must include developing a life of discipleship. The husband is to encourage his wife and provide an environment for her to become an excellent wife. Proverbs 31 talks about what an excellent wife is. Verses 10 and 11, it says, An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Another version says in verse 11 that the heart of the husband has confidence in her. That's what a husband is to build in his wife. And then love looks like, according to Paul, just like taking care of yourself as a husband. Verses 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And as he did with wives, Paul gets personal with men here. He says that the standards, the standard is that husband should nourish and sustain and cherish his wife. Cherish there is a Greek word that means to keep warm and safe. As a husband would take care of himself, that is to keep himself fed, keep himself in health, keep himself warm, he should treat his wife the same way because she is part of him, as Christ, as uh, the church is part of Christ's body. And then Paul in verse 31 says this about how a man should love his wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2.24. Paul wants to reverse or at least lessen the conflict between husbands and wives due to the fall. One flesh, meaning a full unity between a husband and wife, is the opposite of conflict. Paul is giving husbands and wives a way out of the conflict that is natural to us because of our sin. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church and wives submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Christ brings reversal to that part of the curse and develops the ideal of one flesh. And then Paul, I think, says something unexpected. He talks about a mystery. In verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
seems to me when I was studying this, I've read this passage many times, but when I was studying this, uh, it occurred to me that, I, that this seemed like an unexpected statement. Paul's certainly talking a lot about Christ and the church. But I didn't expect him to talk about a mystery. And he says what he's been talking about is a profound mystery. The word profound in Greek is the word megas, which is where we get the word mega. It's a big mystery. It's a big deal, as well as being profound. And while instructing the Ephesians about husbands and wives should fill their roles, Paul's also been talking about the union between Christ and and the church. And try and grab that picture. The unity between Christ and the church can be pictured by a marriage that functions according to Paul's instructions. Christ did everything for the church so that it could be united with him in the deepest possible way. This is part of the gospel. In fact, this is the gospel being applied to marriages. This is the gospel redeeming marriages. The gospel redeems individuals. Now the gospel redeems marriages. A marriage that is functioning according to what Paul laid out demonstrates the union between Christ and the church. And while it is a mystery, it is profound, and it is clear. What God wants in marriage is what he originally intended, as expressed in Genesis 2.24, complete unity, while at the same time reversing the curse of Genesis 3.16. If you're married, your marriage can demonstrate what a gospel-redeemed marriage looks like. And it can be a real image of the reality and the unity of Christ and the church. And then Paul ends the passage where we began. Verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respect and submission, self-sacrificial love are the marks of a godly marriage. And in this, Paul is saying, forget the culture. And he was saying, forget the culture, the Roman culture that they were a part of in regards to this. And I think he says to us today, forget the culture that we live in. Forget the assertion of your rights as a husband or a wife. Forget those things, and if need be, repent of the desire to control your marriage and your spouse. Rather, wives, submit to your husbands as as the church submits to Christ, recognizing the order that God has created and in the example of Christ. And husbands, love your wives as Christ gave himself up for the church, recognizing that God has called you to love your wife by giving yourself up for her. All right, a few applications. I do need to say here that abuse should not be tolerated, whether it's uh, physical abuse or sexual abuse or even emotional abuse. It shouldn't be tolerated. And in a situation, in a marriage like that, a situation like that, I think it's reasonable to uh, not ask a wife to submit to her husband because she's not going to respond in that way to that kind of a marriage. If you're in a situation like that, seek out some help for that. In a marriage, though, where your spouse refuses to follow Paul's instructions that isn't abusive, my parents were like that. My parents, my, my father was not a bad guy. Um, he, he, was a, he was a pretty good guy. My parents didn't argue very much, but the conflict that they had between them was quiet, but it was still there. So if you're in a marriage where your spouse is not fulfilling the instructions, I think Paul calls you as best you, as you can in the situation that you're in to do what God has called you to do, to submit if you're the wife, to love if you're the husband. If you're not married, it's okay. This can still apply. 
You can practice Ephesians uh, 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if you're looking to get married, that's good practice for you. And if you are married, look at how you stand in the instruction Paul gives to you, whether wife or husband. The instruction is not to see how your spouse is doing fulfilling their call. The instruction is for you to fulfill your call in the marriage, whether wife or husband. If you need to confess and seek forgiveness from your spouse, do that, as well as from God. Then remember your example in Christ and rely on his power and grace to enable you to be the spouse that God has called you to be. And finally, if you're lost in this, you just don't know where to turn, how to deal with this, how to take the next step, I suggest that you seek out a couple who is demonstrating the kind of marriage that God wants them to demonstrate, the kind of marriage that you would like to have. Seek them out. Spend some time with them. Talk with them. Pray with them. Learn to see what it looks like where a wife is submitting and a husband is loving. Allow them to help, help you. Allow them to pray for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us enough, Father, to uh, begin to reverse the curse, even in our lives now, particularly in our marriages. Help us, Father, take to heart what you've called us to do, whether as a wife to respect and submit to her husband, as to the Lord, or husbands who are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We won't be perfect, we aren't perfect, but Father, we can still rely on your power and the power of the Holy Spirit to help us move toward that ideal of one flesh. And I ask that's what you produce, beginning even today, Father, in marriages uh, in this congregation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.